temperament and your ability to be rational at all times was paramount. You know, most people are smart enough. You know, the, the, the best traders are not professors. And there's a reason for that. It's because they don't have the temperament and the willingness to take risk, nor the emotional stability to take that type of risk. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 21. Bill Perkins is not afraid. One of the frustrations encountered in domains with high amounts of variance is that it is quite easy to be generally right but specifically wrong. You can make a decision backed by experience, logic, and data, and still end up being very wrong. The process is galaxy brain. The results are dog shit. This can happen in any of the fields that we cover on this show, but for this episode, let's look at the world of commodities trading. Consider that over the last dozen or so years, natural gas prices have trended on average downward. In 2008, a million BTUs was priced above $14. And by 2020, the price had dipped below $2 a few times. That sounds like a great time to make a big bet against natural gas, right? What could possibly go wrong? Well, somewhere between $14 and $2, this happened. Nearly 90 million Americans are now in the grip of dangerous cold as the polar vortex spreads across more of the country. At least nine deaths are connected to the historic winter blast that's causing major disruption across the Midwest and Northeast. And utilities are dealing with a dilemma of high demand. In Minnesota and Michigan, energy companies are asking millions of customers to conserve natural gas to avoid stressing the system. Michigan's Consumers Energy Company asked the big three automakers to suspend operations at their Michigan plants. All complied, including GM, which shuttered 11 plants across the state. So even though the long-term trend was down, when utilities have to call up their customers and ask them to please turn off the valve so that people don't die, I'm sure you can imagine what happens to short-term prices. Also, this isn't a hypothetical. This actually happened to Bill Perkins. Bill is a natural gas trader, and by the time the polar vortex rolled around, he'd been responsible for about a billion dollars in trading profits. Here's Bill. We say, okay, given normal weather, what's the S&D? Let's say the S&D is very loose and you want to be short and prices are too high, etc. In the winter, that doesn't really matter if it's very cold, right? You're gonna get you're gonna get hurt. Well, we had a winter where uh, not it was a winter for the record books, or, or or a month for the record books, and it was continual. And we also had a liquidity crisis with people needing to get out, and so it almost destroyed me. We'll hear more about this ordeal, but let's go back to the beginning. When Bill started in the markets, he had nowhere to go but up. So when I first got started, I was a screen clerk. My job was to check trades and sneak sandwiches on to the trading floor for the, for the traders. Uh, So I learned how to sneak uh, sandwiches past security guards on the New York Mercantile Exchange. But I I also learned about what futures were, what energy commodities were, uh, how did commodities work? How did they bring demand forward? How did hedging work? Those type of things, the basic kind of futures 101 class. Back in the day before computers took over the world, 
traders used to stand around a pit yelling and screaming and, and, and making trades with each other and writing them down on a pad. And they would have clerks check the trading pads, right, their notes versus the other clerks, uh, other traders noting uh, trades to make sure it was right, make sure there were no errors before they were entered into the computer system of the New York Mercantile Exchange. And those guys were called screen clerks, mainly because we looked at a computer screen and made sure that the notes of our trader matched what were on this computer screen. If not, there was a whole process to correct and resolve errors. And, and these things had to happen within a certain time frame. Today, Bill is perhaps best known for his Instagram account, where he documents his rich guy lifestyle. You know, vacations around the world, famous friends, that type of thing. But when Bill started, his relationship with rich guy life was very different. Screen clerks don't get paid a lot of money. You know, you're there for the upside, right? I could have easily worked at McDonald's and made more money or worked at any restaurant and made double the money I was making. So times were very hard and tight uh, with money. And one day my boss and the, my boss's boss were talking about how their limo driver had quit. And, and he, you know, they were paying a max. And I was like, I will drive the limo at night. I have no problem driving this limo at night. He said, you know, I wanted the money. And so I drove the limo at night to make ends meet. Bill says that he was a slacker when he was young, but the thing that snapped him out of it was hunger. He wanted a different life than the one he had. I was in that phase of life where it's like, your parents aren't here to rescue you. Nobody's coming to rescue you. And being poor sucks, right? And so I, I had a choice of being a victim and thinking things uh, you know, I deserved it or actually, you know, working hard and scrapping and, 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 and saving money and, um, you know, learning as much as I can to, to, to go on this kind of delusional path of being a very successful trader. Right. And I, I think I needed a little bit of delusion to believe that. Right. Because it's, it's a very, um, it's a rare, it's a rare thing to do. Right. It's a tough thing to do. And so I think, you know, the first thing I needed was belief that didn't guarantee my success, but it guaranteed that I tried. Bill wasn't part of a training program that would eventually make him a trader. So he invented his own program. I read a lot of books at that time when I was on the exchange floor. You know, it's kind of a, a gladiator sport in terms of trying to get ahead. And so if you're waiting for somebody to rescue you and teach you, you're not going to make it. I took a nighttime course in options trading, learning, learning the basics of options. I asked for what books I can read to learn about commodities. I read like three or four books on commodities. And then I was able to ask informed questions during the day from traders and just listen to them and, and understand you know, their take. Like, you know, there's a textbook and it's like, well, how does it really happen in the real world? How do they really execute and what's what's going on? So I was hoovering up information as much as I possibly could given my, you know, level of maturity and, and eagerness and, and the resources around me. And that's how I came to learn, you know, what what a future market is, what it does, how does it operate with respect to uh, energy. Bill's early career was marked by steady progress, along with the occasional setback. I rapidly was having different salary increases, and I was learning about different aspects of uh, the financial industry. You know, I originally learned about commodities and futures, and then I was learning about options. And each move that I made, I was recruited 
and I was paid a little bit more or a lot more, right? And then I went over to counter brokering and I made a lot more, but then I hated it. So I think just the scorecard was the money and the money kind of let me know I was going the right path or doing the right things. And there were times I messed up, right? Like there were times where I was like, oh shit, I'm fired and I'm broke again. And so there were times where I fell down and had to get, get back up. In the mid nineties, Bill left New York and set out to find opportunity in Houston. I went over counter brokering and it was lucrative for me, but I really hated it. I, I felt like I wasn't in control of my own destiny and that I was relying on somebody else's attitude or whether they liked me or not, or, you know, I knew, I knew them or I was friendly with them and it just didn't sit well for me. And I, and I really wanted to be a trader. And so when I got the opportunity, whether it was in Siberia or Houston or, or Kathmandu, I was going, right? I was young, I was 25, I was ambitious. And I had like a healthy dose of arrogance, right? Like I can do it (laughs) against all odds. And so when I got to Houston, you know, I'm 25 years old, was a person who formally said I would never live south of the Mason-Dixon line, but here I am not knowing a soul moving to Houston for this opportunity. I was just grateful to be able to step in the arena, right? And somebody was entrusting me with it. The, The idea that this is the place to be uh, didn't really sink into my head until I got here. So I was just taking a chance. I was like, hey, I'm getting recruited to run an, uh, an options desk at a firm and I'm going, I don't care, right? I got a, I got a good deal and I'm going to go down there and try and kill it. When I got here, I was like, wait a minute. The drinks are like one fifth the cost. I was living in a pizza oven and now I have a two bedroom, you know, two bedroom duplex with a pool outside. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, like the quality of life was like 10 to 15 X and the people were friendly. You know, I was living in the Upper West Side in Manhattan and, you know, I'm a young single guy. Like the girls are very friendly down here as opposed to New York City where, you know, you could spend all night, you know, talking, buying drinks and get a wrong number. Right. And so whereas, you know, to me, I was, you know, very much in a very exciting time of my life. and, And I was very appreciative for the opportunity, both socially, quality of life, and, and, and trading was. To understand the kind of opportunity that Houston represented, you have to remember that in the late 90s, the toast of the corporate world was the Houston-based energy firm, Enron. Even if the intervening 20 years has turned Enron into a punchline, the label, the smartest guys in the room, wasn't initially ironic. They were Fortune's most innovative company for six straight years. Also, Enron was just one of the Houston-based energy companies with large trading floors. There were others, like Reliant, Dynegy, and Coke Industries. So even though Bill wasn't at Enron, he was on hand for the trend, and he was in the game. At the time when I was, you know, trading and I got here, and there was, you know, the Enrons and the Dynegies and and all all the trading firms that were running around that that either had assets or were building assets, Enron was kind of like the king. Right. Enron was the most, I think, envied trading shop just because they were innovative. They hired bright people and found a place for them. And, and that was a place like you wanted. And they traded large size. They, they weren't afraid to take risk. They priced almost anything. So that, that was kind of like the place to be. And the thing about natural gas is kind of like, um, you know, you don't really see two boxers who box each other hanging out or two MMA fighters 
who are in the same weight class who fight like they don't they don't hang out. They're not buddies and not running around. But uh, but trading is more like golf. You know, you're competing, but you're competing against yourself against the golf course. And so it's much more conducive to people talking shop, hanging out, running around. So you, the traders from all the different shops, the young traders, we all hung out together. We played golf. We, you know, we tri- went on trips together. You know, it, it, it was a much more um, a much more conducive environment to camaraderie. Right. Like we're all we're all in the same field industry together than if we were MMA fighters, you know, fighting each other. And so by that token, you would walk around with people that were like at a shop where you like kind of like you were either uh, envious of that shop. And Enron was a shop to envy at that time. Energy trading was just starting to explode due to deregulation. And because the business was relatively new, lots of the traders were in their 20s like Bill. And they loved to talk shop. You go out to dinner, conversation might be a little bit of sports, but then it's back into the fundamentals of, 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 of whatever is going on in the market. And so you quickly formed um, relationships based on this common interest and this common love of solving this puzzle. The collapse of Enron is only important for our purposes because of the collateral damage it caused. At the risk of oversimplifying, Enron went down because it was a sophisticated shell game. They moved accounting entries in and out of special purpose entities in order to obscure their true financial state. When the firm filed for bankruptcy, the trading business was a casualty, but it wasn't really the cause of the failure. They were being forced out of positions by banks because credit rating downgrades, right? Like a lot of trades back in the day were done bilaterally, right? Through ISDA agreements or, or, or bilateral agreements. And if your credit rating did X or your stock dropped to Y, you had the right to force that person out of the trade, just like break the trade and get them out of the market and send them a bill. You know, that's kind of basically the beginning of the end for a trading shop. And so that, that, ha- that was going on in mass. And so there versus, let's say, their mark to mark, right? Their slippage every time you do that, you know, you're, you're, you only have to just go out and get, they were just getting blown out of all their trades. So, it was, it, you know, we kind of knew it was over. The chief natural gas trader at Enron was a guy named John Arnold. In his last year there, he reportedly made $700 million for the firm, and they paid him a bonus of $8 million. He was 27 years old at the time. Today, he's a legend in natural gas because of what he did after Enron. He took his last bonus and started a fund called Centaurus, where he recruited Bill and a few others to join him. John was... Looking, you know, running around trying to raise money to, to, to start a fund. And, you know, in typical investor fashion, people said they were going to put in the money, but they, but they didn't, right? They didn't show up on time. You know, I guess they had doubts about whether John could operate outside the machinery of Enron and whether, whether it was Enron that he was successful, made him successful, or what John was a, a good trader. And, uh, you know, so John had these commitments, but people kept, uh, you know, pussyfooting around and, and not showing up. Oh, well, I'm ready to start. We're ready to invest, ready to go. And so John plunked down his own money. And myself, John, Jed Ligums, a girl named Jennifer, and Shilpa running the back office started, uh, joined him and started Centaurus. Centaurus was basically a rocket ship. They made 100% annual returns seem easy, and they quickly closed the fund to outside investors, 
In a few years, they were a major player, managing several billion dollars. Also, as Centaurus grew, one of their key rivals blew up. Amaranth Advisors was a $9 billion fund that soared and crashed, mostly due to one energy trader. They racked up big profits in 2005 when natural gas prices soared after Hurricane Katrina, but their trading losses in 2006 are still among the largest hedge fund losses ever, and by the end of the year, they were out of business. Their head energy trader had a take on the market that turned out to be wrong, and then he doubled down on it. The go-for-broke strategy resulted in a position so large that at one point, Amaranth was estimated to be 50% of the entire market for a specific natural gas futures contract. Centaurus and Bill were on the other side of some of these trades. My perspective on this, and I know I wasn't the only person that they had trades on, but I was doing for that time and for my my book and my ba- my balance, my trader balance at the time, just massive size trades on the way. And I was getting run, run over by Amareth putting this position on. Um, and then, and the whole market was, right? Like it just, and I was like, this, this is lunacy, right? Uh, and then when he had to unwind it, it, it was just lunacy the other way. So it, it was just kind of crazy. Uh, it was a, it was a very crazy time. And I think, you know, he needed to be right, right? He needed to be right in order based on the, you know, the premium he was paying to get those trades on, right? The bid ass he was crossing to get those trades on. Had he been right, he would have destroyed the whole market. The Amaranth story reminds me of the phrase attributed to Wyatt Earp that goes, the less you bet, the more you lose when you win. On one hand, it's a hilarious phrase that seems like it could only come from a degenerate gambler. On the other hand, it indicates a real puzzle to be solved, which is, how much should you bet? If you think the answer to the question is easy, consider how many smart people have stumbled trying to solve it. If you double down and lose, you're a failed Martin Gaylor. If you double down and win, you're a market wizard. My point isn't to engage in excuse making for traders that blow up. The point is only that the central question of how much to bet isn't an easy one to answer. What what Amaranth did was he severely misjudged liquidity when he was wrong and the cost to get in and out. And so, um, you, you know, th- that's a age old question, you know, that you have to get. It's like, oh, if I'm, what's the proper size for me to have for this position given my balance sheet? You're like, well, that depends. How far is the market going to move, <laughs> right? So, so you know, and so when guys get in trouble, right, they're like, oh, I didn't think the market could move this far. Therefore, my position is too big. And so, um, you know, that that is, you know, there's all kinds of models that people use, VAR, which is a look back model. None of them are perfect. That's something that you have to really deeply think about all the scenarios that can happen uh, within, you know, some some reason and and size appropriately. That is a skill and an art. After a decade of stellar results, John Arnold announced his retirement and closed Centaurus. He was a multi-billionaire at 38 years old. Bill took the record he had built over the years and raised his own fund. So the way it works in Centaurus, the externally, you know, investors get their their year, right? And we would get paid uh, a third, a third, a third, rolling balances. There was no such thing as an end of year. And you were able, let's say you made $10. You were able to risk that complete $10 if you wanted to. 
And then when you got paid out on that $10, right, whatever percentage you got paid, you only had, let's say, $6.66, right? And then you can risk $6.66, right? And your trader balance, right? So over the course of uh, trading at Centaurus, I think I made a billion dollars in my book, right? A billion and some change trading. And last year was like 500 million, I think. So over time, just building up my book, building up my book and trading. And, and I had gone from trading a very small book and, you know, building it up to trading a very large book and learning how to trade in illiquid markets and in all kinds of, of scenarios. And so I, I think it wasn't just Amareth, right? Like Amareth wasn't even my best year trading, but it was just the consistent ability to make money. Like I made the most money trading at Centaurus, except for John. There were some people, you know, they knew this is not like everybody knows it, right? But like there are people who know this, right? Like there, there were people who know that. And um, I was always of, you know, a solid person. I treat other people's money with extreme respect. I have my style of trading and, uh, you know, I um, have my integrity and people were willing to back that. They were willing to take a, a risk on somebody who was willing to take risk. On a conceptual level, you might say that edges are the result of taking a chaotic process and finding the hidden meaning in the chaos. So in a market that seems efficient and random, if you can find the signal in the noise, then you have an edge. Earlier, Bill called it a puzzle, which is another way to put it. As you assemble a puzzle, it goes from pure noise to pure signal. Here's Bill talking about his method for finding the meaning in the chaos. I look at the price, I look at what demand is, and that can be residential, commercial, gas burns, future changes in gas burns, level of storage, will storage be depleting quickly based on these, the supply and demand ba balance, or will storage be filling up so much that it overfills, right? Like in, in our market, there's not infinite storage, right? And we saw that at Cushing this past year. Uh, and so if the supply demand balance is particularly loose, we can have a, a situation where we have to induce demand or actually turn off supply because prices go so low and there's no place for the gas to go. Consequently, on the other side, if supply and demand balances are very tight, where demand is high relative to supply, um, we can have scenarios where we actually run out of natural gas. So that, therefore, the prices need to rally to ration off gas, to ration people from, from burning it and using it. And so, you know, that's the push-pull dynamic of natural gas. And, and my job is to study all the factors to see what's likely, what's probable, uh, you know, is it is it too cheap for for the various things that can happen, or is it too expensive for all the various things that can happen? Not all commodities trading is one big casino. Imagine you're a natural gas producer and you have billions invested in your business, but everything is dependent on a very volatile market. It's possible for prices to fall enough that you can't afford to operate. You might enter into a hedging arrangement to smooth out your results. Your intent isn't to gamble. In fact, you're willing to pay a premium so you don't have to gamble. Bill might be on the other side of that hedge. You know, I, I tell people I'm a, I'm a glorified insurance agent. People that have risk for the price going down, they sell and I, they induce me to buy. And people who have risk for the price going up, they buy and they induce me to sell. I don't, I don't sit there every day trading. I wait till the market gets out of whack relative to what I think fair value is. And that difference is my edge, right? Just like an insurance company writes insurance premiums 
at a certain edge, right? Like you you want the risk of your house burning down or whatever, they run all the actual all the stats and they charge you a little bit of margin. And so most of the market is not doing what I'm doing. Right? I just happen to be one of the risk warehousers that actually studies the market inside and out to make the best estimate of where things are going to be given a, a certain range of scenarios. Bill has been running his own fund for about a decade now. In that time, he's gone through some extreme highs and extreme lows. He's reportedly seen minus 50% years, followed by plus 200% years. The first instance was during the polar vortex of the 2013-14 winter. It, it's been overall gone very well, but there are two instances where I almost died. We, we have a saying that if you trade long enough, you're going to blow up. And, and, and the second saying is you, you, you generally blow up when you have the most conviction. Bill's problem wasn't limited to the fact that his bet had gone against him. The problem was exacerbated because he couldn't easily cover his position. I can't get out because no one else wants to sell or, or buy, whatever, whatever the case may be. Like I need to buy 10,000 lots of X and I don't have a part person willing to offer a price of 10,000 X. I think it's worth considering how easy it would be to just roll over and die in a situation like this. First, as Bill says, your conviction that you're right would work against you. You wouldn't want to throw in the towel and admit to the 50% you've already lost. You liked the trade when you put it on and then it got a lot cheaper. So it's not just that doubling down is the emotional response. There's also a logic to it as well. Then, while you're trying to figure out what to do, the phone is ringing. Investors want to know how much you're down, and they also want to know if you have a plan. You know, there's, there's two ways that you, you can die, right? You could die that you just lose all the money. You can't get out, and the market keeps going, and you get liquidated out. Or you can lose a, you can lose a significant amount of money, and then the investors pull all that money, right? They just go, we're out. Let's pull the money, you know? So the investors weren't pulling their money. And I was able to call around to all the other traders that I knew and chop wood. Uh, I even called John, who like traded his personal account, and be like, "I need five thousand lots. This price is ridiculous." I was like, "Okay, here, sold." You know, and 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 just chop wood and reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce to live to fight another day. Now, the losses that we had was like most people would get the pull, the 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 plug pulled right let's let's pull the plug but they didn't pull the plug so i just chopped wood and i guess i guess one of the things they have is like i'm, I'm the type of trader that can have a hundred and something percent year so if i lose 50 percent, it's not that you know what i mean they think like okay you can you can come back but it, it doesn't feel good when it's like crap i need to come back i'm trading in smaller limits i need to chop wood and build this up but i was able to do that i wondered if these near-death experiences affected Bill's confidence as a trader. The question wasn't fully out of my mouth before Bill said, absolutely not. If you're going to be a boxer, you better like getting punched to a certain extent. You better be okay with getting punched. You, might, you need to be okay with even getting knocked down. If not, every time you get punched and you're like, what the fuck, why am I doing this? Like, what's going on? Like, you know, like, this is not for you. And so if I have a one in... 71 year winner and or if i had this uh, you know one and whatever event happen you know it's just part of the job i get paid to get punched in the face and deal with it 
and chop wood out of it. The only thing that disturbed me is, is that, you know, I had different, different pieces of advice coming in, like, oh, you should just shut down the fund and, and trade your own money. You're not going to be able to claw out of the, 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 the hurdle, right? The high watermark or, or, you know, you have all these expenses and employees you, you got to cover is like, I was really worried more about the employees than anything else. Not worried about the money I lost or the money, whatever. I was worried about if I shut down, will the other employees be able to get jobs? But as far as like my confidence in trading, no, not, not one bit, not one iota. Earlier, I hypothesized that edges are the result of pulling meaning from chaos. If that's true, then it's also true that variance and volatility are built in. They are inherent to the process. Without chaos, there is no puzzle to solve. Without variance and volatility, it would be easy. Anyone could do it. But not everyone can do it. You know, you can just see how many times you're going to have a bad day as a trader, right? Like if, you, if you're a, a great commodities trader, right, and you're right 55% of the time or 60% of the time, that's amazing. But four out of 10 days are terrible. And so if you can't handle four out of your 10 days being bad days, you're going to be you're going to be out of sorts, right? You have to be able to deal with a lot of pressure, even on good days, never mind bad days, so that when the good opportunities or the good risk reward scenarios come out, that you have your wits about you and you're thinking with your prefrontal cortex and not your, you know, your pituitary gland or, or whatever, your, your amygdala. Bill has a few hundred thousand followers on his Instagram account, which means that any potential investor can easily see the lifestyle he leads as well as when he's working and when he's on vacation. I was curious if this had ever been a problem. I, I got into trading to make money, to live life, right? To do the things I want to do, right? So if I, I'm not going to just like not do the things I want to do and live my life to be somebody's monkey. Like I'm here to make you money, not to be your monkey. A lot of people that doesn't sit well with, right? A lot of people like this money funnels down from, you know, the money that goes into hedge funds funnel down maybe from a pension fund, which are very conservative people or some bank overseas or so, some investment authority, right? And so that may not sit well for them and, and they don't see past that. And, and I get it. I, I don't blame them. They, they can invest or not invest for whatever reason, but I'm not going to like live in the prison of somebody else's opinion. There's definitely been an opportunity cost, some of it unseen, but I've been told about it. And there's other people who've been able to arbitrage that and put money in and not have that much in the, in the fund. And that way they make good returns and the other people just, you know, they miss out. But for, for me, between, you know, everybody searching for that work-life balance and I'm like, wow, if, if, you know, trading, it's like you're always working, right? You're always responsible for the position, right? Like when the, when the vortex or things happen, I'm getting calls at 4 a.m. from the clearinghouse, like, what's this? You know, like chaos is happening, right? And you're always obsessing and thinking about, you know, there's always a couple of neurons firing, thinking about some scenario in the market or what's the spread doing? What's S&D going to do, right? And so that's a huge tax on your life. And, and I was like, to actually then have another tax on top of that where I need to behave at, you know, as if I'm running for office or some sort of beauty contest, it, just, it, just, it was just a red line for me. Bill is also something of a minor celebrity in the poker world. He's not a professional player, but he's known to play for very high stakes. This makes him a VIP in a world where professional players rely on fresh money 
coming into the ecosystem? When I first started playing poker, it was purely entertainment. Just kind of hang out. Like, I, I don't get the gamble, right? Like, I, I, I'm always taking, you know, I'm always on the side of the house when I'm trading, or at least I believe I am, right? I don't get to go, well, I don't, you know, let's just do it for YOLO, right? Or let's just put pressure. Like, everything I do is, is, is calculated, right? It's a calculated risk-return, risk-reward uh, situation in which I have a positive EV scenario, which I know, which is thoroughly researched by, like, you know, multiple people, including myself. Poker, I can do what I want. It's my money. I can goof off. I can be social. I can, you know, it's more of a form of, like, blowing off steam and having a good time and talking with people at the table. As far as, like, having an edge, you know, a game like that is, well, who are you playing against? Whether or not you have edge, right? Like, in, in the mar- in versus Mr. Market, right? Mr. Market, where it's the natural gas market, I have a lot of edge because I am one of the most knowledgeable. And if I'm not the most knowledgeable, I got three other people in my shop who are very knowledgeable who are also giving me pieces of information about what's going on in natural gas, right? And if I step into a market or arena, I'm, I'm really not only on a static basis, but also on a go forward, what if analysis, right? Or counterfactual regret minimization for all you nerds out there <laughs> of, of what's going to happen in natural gas. In poker, that's not me, right? Like I'm the big whale, I'm the big fish most of the time because there's professionals out there whose job it is to know all these scenarios and all these, all the plus EV spots, et cetera, right? That I am not throwing in enough time to do that, right? But if I thought about poker and obsessed about poker as much as I did trading natural gas, I would be one of the best poker players in the world. Bill has a very high opportunity cost when it comes to learning poker. His upside in trading is immense. His upside in poker is relatively capped. So there's an obstacle for him to become a world-class player. That's why it was somewhat surprising when he accepted a heads-up challenge against the young poker pro, Landon Tice. The two agreed to play 20,000 hands of heads-up no limit with 200-400 blinds. 20,000 hands is a significant time commitment, and Landon is a very good player. So if Bill wanted a chance at holding his own, he had to take it seriously. You know, I have a pretty full life and a pretty full schedule. And so the main thing I had to do was check with my fiance. It's like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. Um, I'm going to be studying. I'm going to be playing practice rounds for, you know, an hour, two hours a day. And then I'm going to do hand review for like an hour or two hours a day. And I have to do it at night. That was kind of grindy, but it was a fun grind, right? Like, it's kind of like when you just start out trading and you're just anxious to solve puzzles and you're addicted to solving the puzzle of whatever market you're in, whether it's equities, bonds, commodities. Um, you know, it, it was just fun to learn. And I think learning is fun. And so I had uh, coaches and tools to learn and, and, and I was excited to get better rapidly. In terms of just playing each time, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of strange because even though there's a bunch of scenarios, right? Like we're both allowed random number generators and um, a lot of the times your decisions, you really, when you're playing perfect poker, poker is something that happens to you, not something that you do. You know what I mean? Like there's no real decision to make, right? <laughs> so if you're playing perfectly, right, there's no real perfect GTO. This is called game theory optimal, right? It's like when this happens, you do this, right? When this happens and you roll a 15, you do this, right? So 
a lot of it, it really was like taking a test, right? Each spot hops up. It's pre-flop. He bets. Do I raise? Do I three bet? Do I do X, Y, and Z? Oh, I rolled this. I'm going to three bet this time because I have two choices. The flop comes out. He bets 15% of the time on this board texture or 20% of the time. I'm going to three bet, you know, most of the time, other times I'm going to call. So, I, you know, you roll your random number generator, you call. And so playing was fun just kind of seeing the results, right, of what's going on. But the actual mechanics of playing is very much like taking a test. Because Bill is a recreational player and Landon is a pro, Landon gave up a spot or a handicap to even things out. Bill just had to lose by less than nine big blinds per hundred hands in order to prevail in the match. The two played a number of sessions, but the match ended early when Landon and his investors threw in the towel. They didn't believe they were up by enough to overcome the handicap. The effort Bill put in, along with the good terms he negotiated, made him the winner. If you were looking at it in a vacuum statically, you would be like, wow, Landon's going to crush Bill Perkins. He's not going to put in the time to go study. And and that was the big question. Um, What they didn't know is that I'm involved with two coaches who were developing a system to easify learning and to kind of accelerate your learning. And that once you call me out publicly and it's a head up match, and, uh, you know, you're going to get a different Bill Perkins. Now, you're not going to get 25-year-old, young, hungry Bill Perkins, you know. Uh, I'm, you know, the lazy gene is starting to kick back in, right? Like, because I've been successful. <laughs> and I think it happens to the best of us. But you're going to get a different Bill Perkins than, than what, you, what you had seen before. And since the poker world had seen somebody who's willing to just treat this recreationally, not really take it too seriously, nowhere near like a pro, And heads up is a very complex game. You know, they were in theory in a good spot. But given I know who I know who I am is that if you challenge me, you're going to get a little bit of the tiger coming out. I've said before that while this podcast is ostensibly about gambling, it is also about people who choose to spend their lives in interesting and unconventional ways. Bill is perhaps an uber example of this. In addition to his life in the market and his rich guy Instagram and his poker hobby, he is also the author of a book called Die With Zero. Bill says that you should attempt to spend all of your money in your own lifetime, and you should spend that money on experiences that will enrich your life. In some sense, it is a restatement of the idea that you can't take it with you, and it is also a reformulation of Carpe Diem. Die With Zero, I, you know, the concepts and the thoughts. And, and, and the mental models I had been thinking about since I was broke, since I was 21, fresh out of college, you know, driving a limo at night, trying to make ends meet. Because when you start out, you're kind of like, OK, why am I going to work and what do I want to buy? Do I want a house? And I want to be rich. I want to be rich before I'm 30. But why before 30? You know, what, what is the purpose of it all? And, and, you know, what is the money for? And when is more importantly, when is the money for? Like I would see, you know, you can't walk around Manhattan without, without, you know, bumping into a rich guy. I, I like to say you can't swing a dead cat in Manhattan without hitting a millionaire. But I used to be fairly arrogant as a young guy. I'd be like, well, they're old, right? These guys were like 43, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, like I'm 52 right now. But, but the idea was, is that like, what are they going to use the money for, right? After they buy their house and they put the kids in school and they do whatever, like where are they really 
What are they really doing? Now, that was a lack of imagination on my part, but it was it was definitely, you know, I had an idea that the, the utility of money declines with age, right? Nobody says I want to be rich at 96 or, or, or 86 for that matter. Quite frankly, you see a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, my relatives and, and uh, who are older, like they won't leave the house. Right. It's a it's a chore to get them to leave the house, even though they can. They're, they're, they're physically able. The attitudes have changed. And so, you know, I had this idea of like, OK, I want to get rich and then I want to spend all the money and do a lot of things. And then I just want to chill and have grandchildren, whatever. Just a very broad, broad, broad strokes. And, and I, I was just kind of like, how do I optimize, you know, how do I optimize my earnings and my spend curves so that I'm just not on a treadmill, treadmill forever earning money that I'm never going to spend? And, you know, I read a book called Your Money or Your Life which really cracked my head open about what money is and, and life energy, et cetera. And these questions have been, you know, gnawing at me and answers to these questions for years, for over 20 years. Uh, and I wanted to, um, in order to kind of like optimize my life and my spending pattern and like get the most out of my life, I wanted to write a computer program. I was always like, one of these days, I'm going to get some computer programmers, a mathematician, and an economist, and I'm going to write a program, and it's going to tell me how much to spend every day, how many vacations to take, whatever. It's going to have all my likes and dislikes, and it's going to do all these things for me, right? It's just going to spit out this kind of like, you know, this is how, what your net worth should be at this age, and this is what your net worth should be at this age, and then, you know, guide me to dying with zero so that I get the most out of my life. I was once talking to my doctor. And part of the psychological exam was, you know, do you worry about money? Do you worry about running out of money? And I said, well, I hope I run out of money. I hope I die with zero. And I went into the spiel. And he was like, you need to write a book. And that was kind of like the last straw. And I was like, he's right. Like, I need to get these mental models out in a form in the book. And so quite selfishly, the book and the, as well as the computer program were for me. It was a save my own life. But by writing a book, I, was, I would help other people save their own lives. I, I know people might think, like, what do you mean save your life, right? Like, I, I say this all the time, like, save your life. And for me, I religiously believe that, like, I'm saving my life, I'm saving your life. And I'll give you an example. Like, when somebody's drowning and you, you, you save them, you pull them out of the water, and they were, they were drowning, and you pull them out, and you're like, you saved my life. I was like, guess what? They're still going to die. They are 100% still going to die. They're just not going to die that day. And so what you're really giving them is more experiences, more chances to fulfill their life, more fulfilling experiences. And so when I write this book for you to optimize your life, what am I really doing? I'm giving you more experiences, more chances to live a fulfilling life. The same way you saved that drowning person and, and gave them more fulfilling life. And so I... I, I you know, have this kind of like by trying to save my own life and putting this in words and in a coherent uh, form, arguments, etc. If I can get this idea out into other people in a format that it goes past their ego and they absorb it enough to make changes that I will have saved their life a little bit. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Bill Perkins. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, 
at Half Kelvin.